This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Scrutiny of drug prices around the globe is expected to exert growing pressure on the biopharmaceutical sector. Evaluate Pharma in its recently issued World Preview 2017 Outlook to 2022 says that despite the consensus forecast for worldwide drug sales hitting more than $1 trillion in 2022, it does reflect a drop from the same period a year ago. We spoke to Antonio Iverno head of forecasting for Evaluate Pharma, about the new report, the outlook for the sector, and the potential for a new patent cliff with the advent of biosimilars. This interview was recorded live at the Bio 2017 International Convention in San Diego, so you'll hear crowd noises in the background. Antonio, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. We're going to talk about Evaluate Farmers World Preview 2017 and Outlook 2022. Uh, Let's start with uncertainty. The industry is now bathing in it. The last year, that was kind of a theme with the elections and Brexit, questions about the future of drug pricing, weak economic growth. Uncertainty seems to have grown worse in questions about health care reform, uncertainty on tax reform, and drug pricing threats continue. The outlook for the industry, though, remains positive. How concerned should people be about uncertainty today? I mean, uncertainty will never fade away. And when it comes to pharmaceutical and biotech, always have a, a large component of uncertainty, which is primarily baked into the, the clinical risk of these new compounds. There are many therapy areas where still there are larger net needs and there is still a large component of risk in the development programs. I mean, Alzheimer's is a clear example. So see interesting products coming up, but we know there have been many failures. I mean, the last one was Solanesma from my and then also there is the pricing risk. I mean, the, the, the scenario is quite uncertain in the market in that respect. We don't know how the U.S. reform will pan out in the next few months. Uh, but what we've seen in our numbers is that brokers are more mindful of this risk. And that while the, the industry is still growing positively, is we foresee a 6.5% uh, year-on-year co- uh, growth. Um, for the first time in 10 years, uh, our uh, focus has been revised downward. You talked about the first downgrade in sales. How big a downgrade are you seeing, and is that tied to pricing concerns or other issues? It's, I think there are two main issues. One is pricing, um, and that is linked to the, the the big question whether the system, how long the system will be affordable for. Uh, we see a lot of innovation, positive innovation in many therapy areas, but um, you know all these new therapies come with a very high price, and so the question is whether you know the U.S. market, the European markets, for how long they will be uh, sustainable with the current structure. And the second component that's led, in our opinion, to the um, the downward 
forward trend in our focus is um, the impact of biosimilars. I think brokers more and more see the biosimilars market uh, becoming a reality in the next five to six years. And so we, we've seen for the first time a significant cut in the expectations for some of the largest um, biologic products such as, you know, receptin rituxan or, or OED Mira. I've always thought of countries outside the United States being ahead of the U.S. in terms of biosimilars. Do you see the U.S. catching up in that regard? They are catching up, but definitely catching up. We see payers are much more responsive to biosimilars. Obviously, the market is not as established as Europe, for example, but I think they're learning also from the European experience. And I think the major change is that some of the new uh, biosimilar products will be promoted not by traditional generic players, but for large biotech companies, you know, Amgen, Biogen, Ida. That makes actually a big difference in terms of credibility. It's one of the key challenges for biosimilars is actually the credibility behind that. And that hurdle, I think, is being overcome. You talk about a positive outlook for growth. What, what do you see as the big drivers for growth here over the next five years? I still innovation. Uh, I mean, for the first time in the last um, four to five years, we're seeing a lot of therapies uh, targeting specific needs in many, many areas. I mean, oncology, immune oncology is, is clear is a very clear example. But we see new therapies in multiple sclerosis. You know, previous was, was launched in the last twelve months. And we see also innovation in some of the historically um, more slow therapy areas, like you know, in the cardiovascular spaces, like new wave of innovation that you know, Entresto, Prowland, Repatha. Despite the challenges they had from the market access side, it was still an important innovation in that space. One of the drivers for growth that the report talks about is orphan drugs, which have been a, a bright spot. But even orphan drugs are now coming under scrutiny for pricing. Do, do you see them being, being at risk here at all in terms of pricing pressures, or is that something that is not going to be a, a dampening factor? It's going to change just because the definition of orphan drug is somehow changing. I mean, most companies are targeting specific niche population because they know that that's what payers want. They want to prove clear clinical benefits in very well-defined populations. So the, many companies are pursuing the strategy. So we're seeing more offer indications being pursued by pharmaceutical companies, so it will be unavoidable that pricing will be more on the scrutiny. We've got the potential for healthcare reform right now. We've got reauthorization of the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, where pricing issues may come in. There's also a lot of dysfunction in Washington. Are, are investors at all discounting the threat of pricing pressures because they just don't think Washington can actually get things done? Um, I think historically the pharmaceutical market, the healthcare system in general has been quite slow to change. So in that respect, probably there's been more, uh, the estimates have been more conservative. But I mean, I would say that in the last five years, we've seen dramatic changes in the, in the pricing market access landscape, in especially in the US. I mean, you know, pharmacy benefit managers are now like one of the biggest hurdles for, for products to actually penetrate the market. I mean, I mentioned earlier Prowland and Repatha, even Yucala um, recently in the asthma space. I mean, those products were forecast initially to, you know, ramp up much more quickly in terms of sales, and actually the reality has been completely different. You talk a little about um, the shift from volume to value. We've heard a lot about this. I'm just curious, in terms of its shaping business strategies, are you thinking that in terms of 
the types of drugs farmers pursuing, or are you thinking in terms of actual deals that farmers reaching with payers? It's both. I mean, it definitely value play, plays a role in terms of clinical development progress. Um, we've seen you know, clinical development programs, uh, you know, targeting placebo comparator, those are no longer the case. You need to prove your incremental benefits versus you know, active companies, drugs, which are utilized today in the pharmaceutical market. Uh, but also, uh, pharmaceutical companies are trying to be more creative and innovative when it comes to pricing deals. More and more, we're hearing both for established brands and new brands, uh, pharmaceutical companies pursuing uh, what we call you know, cost, you know, cost sharing, value-based agreements, trying to basically have payers paying only the drugs through the outcomes, um, the, you know, just through the incremental benefit demonstrating the clinical trial. How are you seeing these strategies pay out? Are there, there are things that companies are actually doing that you can point to? I think it's uh, you know has to be tied to the clinical development program. So you need to make sure that your drug is specific, um, is very specific to certain patient populations. So there's increasing use of biomarker and uh, increasing use of companion diagnostic. In that respect, you're trying to make sure that your product is very meaningful for a specific patient population. Then you can expand beyond that, uh, but you want to make sure you nail that specific patient population approach. Once again, we're, we're talking about patent cliffs after uh, a period where that was all the rage. How big a cat patent cliff is this industry facing, and, and will this drive M&A deals? Well, I mean, in terms of patent cliffs, we, we tend to call it the second patent cliff uh, era. You know, with the, there was the first the first wave with um, you know the small molecules that went patent you know five to ten years ago, and, and now we see all the big biologic products you know at risk. Well, some of them already lost patent protection already. You know, uh, being challenged by biosimilars, and we have some other big biologic sellers being challenged by biosimilars in the, in the near future. And in terms of any deal, uh, there is liquidity in the market, and we know the pharmaceutical companies uh, need to diversify the um, portfolio strategy. So R&D, we still see R&D in-house investment, especially when it's very focused in specific therapy areas, being the main driver of innovation. But at the end of the day, you need to you know diversify your innovation strategy, make sure you can tap into different pools of, of innovation research. Do you think this is going to depend on some kind of repatriation of tax dollars, which everyone's waiting for, or do you think we're going to see a, a burst in M&A activity before that? Well, that might definitely drive a ramp-up in, in terms of M&A activities. For me, the big question remains on the value that these M&A deals can generate. Probably in the short term, I can see some values. But long term, I mean, historically, we've seen Bolton acquisition, the type of Bolton acquisition companies that Bristol-Myers we pursued, being more valuable to the long-term portfolio strategy of the company instead of the big M&A moves. And if you were to look at M&A, there are a number of companies that seem to be in big need. Where, where would you think are the most likely acquirers? I mean, we know historically, you know, companies like Pfizer have been always big in M&A and been trying to expand quite aggressively to pursue M&A strategy. I don't think companies will change dramatically the M&A strategy. Companies that were more uh, focused on bolt-on acquisition will probably continue on that path, and companies that are more um, used to pursue the big M&A move uh, will continue to pursue those. Well, th there was a, a big drop in approvals last year. I, I think people should be cautious about reading too much into drug approvals in any one given year. But I, I think one of the most eye-popping numbers in this whole report, which is filled with numbers, is that it took $4 billion to get a, a new molecular entity approved, uh, which is an astounding number. Um, 
are we back at a point where we're also not only talking about patent costs, but the lack of R&D efficiency? I mean, R&D productivity always remains an issue. Um, there are certain therapy areas where the attrition rate is still very high. I mentioned the example earlier in Alzheimer. So that is a challenge. is a challenge. We remain a challenge. And what we're seeing is now to develop a drug. It's not just the first indication you're going to launch. I mean, in the past, you used to launch a big product and a big indication. That was pretty much it. But now, if you see the companies like Merck with the Keytruda or BMS with Oblivo, I mean, you launch the first indication and you have you know, 15, 20 indications following them. Those requires big investments in terms of R&D and clinical development programs. You also touch on some of the new technologies out there like artificial intelligence, but we've had a parade of technologies that were supposed to solve this problem with R&D and efficiency. Are, are we seeing anything that's meaningful out there that may actually move the needle? Um, I wouldn't say move the needle. I can, we did, we've seen some efficiencies, especially in the early stage uh, development process. So some companies might be able to speed up the identification of new targets, and there is some of the early stage investments. But then when it comes to the clinic, you still need to run a very thorough and, and you know, very thorough and complex clinical development program. If anything, actually the cost nowadays is going up because, as I mentioned earlier, placebo trials are no longer uh, viable for payers, so you actually need to identify comparators. Do you think this is going to continue to drive the, the push to externalize R&D at, at bigger farmers? It's all about risk sharing, right? So you need to diversify your investment, you need to diversify your, the risk in your portfolio. So there is a balance between the, the amount of research you can do internally, you can uh, operationally manage internally versus the one that you need external support for. Antonio Yervolino, Head of Forecasting for Evaluate Pharma. Antonio, thanks so much for your thanks time. Thanks a lot, Dan, for Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.